And everybody, welcome back to Talking with Tarashek Podcast. I shaved a beard, but not the hair. That's probably coming next week. But my name is Will Tarashek. T is in Thomas, A-R-A-S-H-U-K. A lot of fun last week doing some unknown, unnamed nonsense, asking random questions, getting silly answers. But today, I am joined by Dr. Adrian McIntyre, who is a cultural anthropologist, international speaker, and storytelling consultant. He has worked in over 30 countries, given hundreds of live media interviews, so maybe I'm number 1,000, there were 1,500 onstage presentations, so maybe not, and written two speeches that were presented to members of the UN Security Council. So that's very interesting. Today, Adrian advises and trains entrepreneurs like myself, small business owners like myself, and corporate teams on communication, business storytelling, personal branding, media, and presentation skills. I'm sure I could use one or two of those. His clients have ranged from solopreneurs, freelance professionals in aerospace companies, hedge funds, technology startups, technology startups, United Nations agencies, and global nonprofits. Adrian, my man. Welcome to the podcast. That's a great, great intro you wrote about yourself that I could just read off there. Yeah, no, we should thank my mother. I'm sure my mom had something to do with that at some point. No, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's great. It's to hard reading. It's hard reading intros about yourself. I tried to do it myself, and it's it's terrible. It's terrible. It's, it's ridiculous. Hard. It's literally, and I used to, uh, you know, one of my earliest little business ventures after graduate school was I started advising people who wanted to go to graduate school yeah. before I realized that my best advice to them is, in most cases, don't go to graduate school. So I stopped doing that. But... Um, that's a genre, you know, writing those essays about yourself, whether it's for college or grad school or, or fellowship or literally anything else. It's an exercise in a really weird form of writing because you both the author and the subject and you're creating this character on the page. And it's a really strange and, and dislocating thing. So thank you. I guess of course. none of, of that course. stuff is actually what defines me. Uh, it's just things I've done. Um, but there you go. Exactly. It's your resume. Now, are you, are you famous enough where if you put your name in the chat, GBT will actually tell you something about yourself? Have you tried it? Uh, apparently not. Oh. I, yeah. I have tried it. I'm, 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 I'm not famous enough for it to have an answer, and I'm probably vain enough to have tried. <laughs> I feel like everyone's vain enough. I was like, hey, who do, who's Bull Tarashek? It just goes, I don't know. I mean, listen, I remember <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the late 90s when I was convincing everybody that they should be switching their search engine from, you know, Ask Jeeves. Uh, uh, to Google, and they're like, what is Google? And I'm like, you should put your name in there and see. And yeah. people were literally so freaked out, you know, this is like 97, 98, by what this thing knew about them. Um, ChatGPT is not like that. It doesn't even try to be like that, but there you go. All right. So, Adrian, introduce yourself. Anything I, I missed, fill in, the, fill in the blanks for me. Uh, I know I had you write about yourself. I had your mom write about yourself. So, introduce yourself in your own words or in your own words of your mother, whatever makes you comfortable. Right. Well, actually, my mother's words are not the words I would usually choose. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. But um, no, I, I often introduce myself, you know, you're a professional gathering or a networking event. Just this last week, uh, I was at a, a big gathering of startups and investors here in Phoenix. And people often say, so what do you do? And as a pattern interrupt, and also because I don't want to have a boring conversation, I will say I'm a cultural anthropologist. And, and that was the first thing that you said as well. And that doesn't define my profession, but it does shape how I see the world. It's a toolkit that I've been trained in that shapes the way I think about who I am, who you are, who we are, and what this human thing is all about. So at some level, it is the right answer, even though it's the wrong one, because nobody ever really knows what that means. And, you know, sometimes they're like, oh, what's that? And sometimes they're like, huh, okay. And that's the end of the conversation. But that's, you know, that's data. That's feedback. So cultural anthropology, uh, for those who don't know, is a weird social science 
uh, and why weird is that it started out as a very amateurish uh, thing that was uncomfortably attached to empire. So most anthropologists were from Europe and North America, and they were doing what later they called research. But at the time, it might have been other things, like including colonial administration jobs, working in faraway places where people were really different, and asking questions like, how do these people put their lives together? What is significant and important to them? What sorts of myths and rituals do they practice and uh, what forms of social structure do they have in their culture and culture for anthropologists started off uh, being a noun you know this thing that that people had so you had the the Trobrian island culture and you had you know the um, you know the, the Samoan culture you know all these other kinds of things over the century or so that anthropology really became a professional and academic undertaking some of the certainty about that got knocked loose a little bit. And we began to ask more interesting questions like, well, what if cultures aren't discrete things that you find on the ground like rocks, right? What if we're not doing biology, which primary you know, role is to identify new types and fit them into some like system of Linnaean classification, right? What if we're actually, what if there's something more interesting and more troubling about being humans studying humanity through the lens of the human sciences. There's this weird kind of circular thing there. And that might sound like nonsense and babble to people, but at some level it makes you ask really interesting questions about who we are, about the stories we tell ourselves and each other, about what it means to be human. And there you have it. Well, I had a friend of mine, very, very smart man, tell me, like, you know, culture is literally just what groups of people do. Like, that is what culture is. It's like, you know, I'm Italian, so uh, Christmas that we do a seven fishes. Or I'm Polish, so we eat a certain food. And that's just, that's just culture, right? Culture is this what a group of people do. Like, this gaming culture. People like to game on Discord and this, that, and the other. So a culture is really just a study of what people do and how they exchange ideas. Right. At some level, that's not wrong. And it's also not exactly right. Um, but what's cool about that definition is it makes you ask yourself a question. Well, even if that were true, if culture is what people do, then what tools are appropriate mm. to the study of that object? I mean, one of the fascinating things about the human sciences, well, the natural sciences as well, is that every new major advance started with some innovation in technology some and, and specifically like instrumentation. So, you know, before people invented the microscope, Hans van Leeuwenhoek or whatever, I probably butchered that, but so historians of science don't hate me. It's been a long time since I read that stuff. But some guy invented, you know, ground glass to make lenses and put them together in a particular way and made a microscope. And now all of a sudden we could see things that we couldn't see before. And it's like, oh, maybe there are these invisible you know, organisms that are alive. And maybe that's what's making you sick. Maybe it's not just the witch doctor or, you know, something else. So every new advance in the instrumentation that allows us to see differently has been followed by a fairly revolutionary change in what we think we're looking at. And I think at some level that's also true for humanity. In fact, I wrote something, you mentioned ChatGPT, and I, I wrote something about AI the other day. And I basically said, you know, I think the greatest threat that AI poses to humans is not what we've been talking about. It's not that it's going to somehow the robots are going to kill us. It's not threatening our lives. Uh, it's not even threatening our livelihoods because we're adaptable and, you know, 
trucks didn't put horses out of business completely. I think it's a threat to, and I'm okay with this, by the way. I think it's a threat to who we think we are. See, regardless of any of those scientific revolutions that I just alluded to, we've persisted in this idea that humans, humans are unique and special and have this kind of place of utmost significance in the grand scheme of things. And I just don't think that's true. But most of us haven't been willing to go there. So I think, you know, and I won't get into the whole rant about it, but basically what I was saying was chat GPT or, you know, these large language models ability to perform these linguistic feats that just blow us away is going to be more troubling because we thought that we were the only ones that could do that. We thought we were the only ones with language and, and consciousness. And, you know, really all that is is stringing together words in particular ways to tell stories about ourselves. You know? right. So now, now that an algorithm can do that, we're like, oh, my God, maybe we're, maybe it, we're it not is, that special. It is, it is a bit of a threat, but it's as a point to us being special. I mean, can you really blame people thinking we're special? I mean, planet Earth, as far as, as, far as we know, in the solar, solar system and the galaxies, we are the only being that can communicate like this. You know, dolphins have the way of communicating, but not to the extent that we do. We are a very special and unique animal on this planet. So, yeah, even though, yes, AI can do these things, it is created by people still. Right. But, I mean, so we, listen, are, I we are people. special because there's, we are. like can, can, what, what compares to us the way we do it and, and the way we are intelligent and communicate on the planet? So the short answer is we couldn't possibly know because we are only we're trapped inside our paradigm so we don't know but mm. to your first question do i blame people for that? no i don't actually blame people for anything honestly you know <laughs> no. if i my moral philosophy That's is good. really like as far as we know you know we are one species amongst many but all yeah. human beings are members of a single species so yes. uh, and we don't live like that we don't act like that we don't take care of each other like that but given that we are in fact one species on this rock spinning through space in the middle of nowhere could we please just not be assholes to each other like is that too much to ask it is so, it is unfortunately it is <laughs> okay well i don't, I don't know I guess why i should lower but my it expectations <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it, it, it comes it comes through again with anthropology. It comes through the, the clash of society and culture. Now you mentioned like that the, the technology is changing um, culture. I would say the technology has changed society more. Like the invention of the wheel, did that really change culture? Did it change society? Or are those terms interchangeable? So those terms are both trapped in a 19th century paradigm for viewing. Okay. You know the objects of analysis and. Yeah, I think there are things certainly that uh, are appropriately labeled within the realm of the social and other things in the realm of the cultural. And at some level, it doesn't, I, you know, I'm not an academic anymore um, by choice. And so, you know, I just don't worry about splitting hairs about stuff. Um, but, you know, different sciences defined their object in specific ways in the 19th century. So sociology said, we're the people who are the experts in society and anthropology said, we're the experts in culture and you know, linguistics in, in its early days defined language in a very particular way such that the new science of linguistics was the appropriate science to study this object. So it's just, it's just games of knowledge, games of truth, and uh, it's all fine. <laughs> it's, not worth getting, it's not worth getting hung up over unless you're, you know, uh, somebody said once about elite academic life that the infighting was so severe because the stakes were so small. <laughs> so, you know, if you got three people uh, in, in the ivory tower who get themselves worked up over these things, I think the rest of us shouldn't worry too much. I agree. I think generally, 
think generally, generally we're going to be okay. I mean, some people aren't going to be okay as time goes on, but that's, you know, survival of the fittest has always been a thing. It's not going to stop now because we have technology. Um, but with, with society and culture, does cultural appropriation drive you crazy? Or is that something you're like, no, I get that. Well, it's not always right. Um, and, and so there's that. And I get it, uh, which doesn't make it okay. I mean, you know, again, understanding what's happening. Like, I feel like, take this in a slightly different direction just for the point of clarification. Like, you know, trauma is real. Mm -hmm. And some of that trauma is the result of horrible things that were done to people by other people. And so to say, for example, now this is an extreme case, to say, look, I can understand and somewhat appreciate the complexity of the abuser's situation. They were also hurt. They were hurt by people who were hurt by people who were hurt by people. None of that makes what they're doing okay. Like, so you can kind of hold the two together without reconciling them. And it's easier, of course, the more distance you have from the thing. Right. So cultural appropriation doesn't bother me in the same way as it would bother someone uh, with less privilege and power whose culture is being appropriated, right? So, but I could still say, hey, you know what? I don't think that's cool. I think we should actually have a conversation about why we assume that some of these things are quote unquote free for the taking. Like why that's, that doesn't, that's not yours. Like, right. where'd you get that? That's not you. Well, isn't, uh, isn't culture, without being, isn't without at the same time, because that's real quick, the flip bye. side of that is also, untenable to me, which is the kind of, you know, liberal hand-wringing about some of this stuff. Um, you know, I, we could get silly uh, in any different direction on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So trying to be pragmatic and trying to have a conversation, I think we all need to have a set of adult conversations about what it takes to, to do better, right? We can all do better, like all of us, you know, so we can have those conversations. So no, it doesn't drive me crazy. And I don't think it's right. I'm trying to give a nuanced answer as possible. But you were about to say something, Will. I mean, two things can also be true at the same time, right? It's, it it yes. can be a complicated issue. But I think where people kind of lose sight, you can't see the forest through the trees, is the idea of intent, right? Because um, culture is meant to be shared, especially in America. We're a melting pot. I live in New York. I live next to New York City. There's more cultures here than around the rest of the world combined, probably. In the, in, sure. In, some of in which, terms of some of which can area. melt. Some of which can melt. And others of which can't. So that's an interesting thing, conversation to have there. Even in the 20th century history of immigration, there you know there were groups, including the Italians, the Greeks, the Jews, that were the object of racist yes. uh, attacks. Who then, over time, became white, or at yes. least white enough. Yes. Um, and so you know the melting pot ideology um, is not a multi multicultural one. Uh, it is a monomyth kind of ideology. Like well. And it leaves out the people who can't melt. And, you know, mm. so there's that. But Okay, interesting. Um, where was I going to go with that? Because like, in intent. I'm going back to intent. Because intent matters. Oh, that's matters. right. Yeah, yeah. In intent matters. Now, there is, there is I'm not going to say cultural appropri appropriation isn't real. Because there is definitely ways you can mock other people's cultures in a way that is harmful in the ways, like you said, power structure and all that thing. But there is plenty of ways. It's just like good old-fashioned fun as well. Like, for example, if like I want to have, uh, I don't want to use me as an example, but if someone wanted to have a, a themed wedding, right? Like they, they want a mariachi band because they generally love Bad Bunny and generally love Spanish. Like I generally love Spanish music. I listen to Spanish music all the time, but it's because I'm white. I can't have like a, a live performance of a mariachi band at my wedding. I don't plan on doing that, but 
I can't do that based on the laws of cultural appropriation. That's just, it's like appropriation can also mean appreciation. Sure. And the, I mean, the reality is there are no laws. So right. there, there also are, and, and this is where it comes back to power relations. So I think, I think intent is good and that's the right word to, to bring to the forefront. And along with intent, I think you have to pair it with a word that sounds similar, but is different. And that's like intention and intentionality. So some people are very thoughtful and intentional and they're going to approach something like you talked about, like what music you want to have at your wedding, right? There's no law. You should have whatever music you want to have. And if you're thoughtful and intentional, there may be a series of conversations that you want to have with yourselves, with, you know, the other people in the wedding party, with et cetera, and come up with something that, you know, takes into account the fact that there are historical inequalities and in power relations and things of that nature. Now, you might do that. I think the thing that people are most troubled by is the fact that the lack of any thoughtfulness or intent and the assumption that, well, I can just, I can do this because it is funny, right? It only gets to be funny from a position of unexamined privilege. And that's the thing that's rubbing people the wrong way. It's like, don't you even realize that without, without any sort of thought or care, like you're able to, right? You're able to like, oh, this is just a joke, right? The fact that you can even say that means you're not appreciating the full significance of what's going on. Is any of this simple? No, I don't think so. Um, do I think that the extreme right and the extreme left both get goofy on this topic? Of course I do. But do I think there's something really valuable in the middle where we actually ought to be questioning ourselves probably more than we are? Yeah, I do. Because uh, honestly, being more thoughtful, being more engaged, being more appreciative, this brings us back to what I hope is going to be a through line through this conversation, which is I really think we ought to be talking more, not less, Absolutely. with each other and with people who are different from us. And rather than starting from the premise of, you know, hey, this is going to be okay, right? It might be interesting to ask the question rather than try to have the answer already. So I think people should talk more. I think we should get more uncomfortable. I think we should, I, I, I tell my kids, I've got two boys, eight, eight and 11, you know, I try not to believe everything I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they get that yet, but like we're trying to at least introduce this idea that, listen, you can, you can have opinions just like everybody else. You can have thoughts, but don't confuse those thoughts for reality. Right. Check them out. Exactly. Talk to people. And investigate. Some, and sometimes you have to take the position of something you don't even believe in. Right. Just, just, just for the sake of argumentation. I don't, say, and, I don't think that, but go ahead. Tell me what you're thinking. Well, it's just like I, I don't like to think of like I am right, you are wrong. Right or this issue is the right issue. This issue is the wrong issue. It's more of like an understanding, right? I want to understand your perspective. I don't need to agree with you. I need mm. to understand you. So if I'm speaking with someone about gun violence and they're saying, "Hey, man, this is my Second Amendment right," like no one's gonna tell me how I can defend myself based on a principle. That's a principle. Now I might not necessarily agree with that, but I will make that argument with somebody who is arguing with strong gun legislation. It's like, hey, I don't necessarily agree with this point, but this is a point that needs to be heard and understood because that is what someone I might disagree with, who you might disagree with, is thinking, and they have a voice in this too. Like sure. something, Absolutely. something, something like that. So it's right. Like, so here's when, a, when here's you, a, please. What ahead. I would just add to that is just a slight little twist, and this will be me, not you. So I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but for me, it's less about taking a position in order to have the conversation, and more about asking the questions mm -hmm. in order to have a conversation. So. You know, and I think that's the key is like, are we having an inquiry and a discussion 
or are we having a debate? In a debate, there's supposed to be two sides yes. that sort of take you know their best shot at each other and then try to rebut and whatever. And that's great when a debate is what's called for, right? Um, and I find in, in most situations with most people outside the context of you know a, a you know, high school or college debate team environment or you know the silliness that we've now put on national cable news on all the channels where you know you line up these guests to basically scream at each other because you know that's going to drive more ratings and uh you know eyeballs etc we're gonna get to the current state of journalism yeah exactly which is not good it's really not good so for, for ordinary folks like you and i and everyone else listening to this i think that the thing that would drive a lot more interesting conversations is curiosity Mm-hmm. Like actually getting really interested and curious and trying to understand. And at some level, this is the, what the anthropologist would say. You know, try to understand it from their point of view. Try to get into their shoes. Try to see how it looks over there Perspective. without yeah. judgment. Now, at the end of the day, I reserve the right to judge people as mercilessly as everybody else. I'm not saying <laughs> this is all about being a softy and like, it's all fine. It's not fine. There's a lot of things that are not okay. Right. But in engaging with people, I'm not going to make that premise that I'm right, you're wrong, the, the, the frame of the conversation. No, I think it's understanding the biases. Now, people like to say media needs to be less biased. Well, yes and no, right? Media is very biased because people are biased. At the end of the day, media is just made up of people. Everyone has their biases. It's better if you recognize and understand your biases. Yeah. Like, yeah, and there's one here that I think throws people for a loop, but uh, but I am of the the strongly held and well considered point of view that so called objectivity is a bias. Yes, and and you know media so traditional journalism was done in an environment that was dominated by white people on a handful of networks that were controlled by rich people. Some of this has changed, some of it hasn't, and so what passed for objectivity was a kind of both sides approach. Like, well, let's hear equally from this side and equally from that side, and then we're neutral and we will sort of rise above the fray. I do believe that a journalistic code of ethics that has a reporter you know, committed to the truth has a place. Um, although, you know, as a practice, that's somewhat on, in the decline. It still holds as like an ideal, but I don't think a lot of people have the budget to do that because fact-finding costs money. I love what Roy Woods Jr. said just recently at the White House Correspondents Association dinner, where he's like, say what you will about a conspiracy theory, at least it's affordable. <laughs> right? That's such a great point. That's, that's because pretty that's pretty good. finding facts costs a news organization a lot of money. There's a lot of yeah, people so does, who have so to be paid. Lying. Look at Fox lying News. Lying is look, free. Look, look at the, yeah, look at the well, My okay, Pillow guy. Cost $5 million dollars. for his lies, right? $900 million is a lot of money. That's an expensive oh, You know part. half it's going to pass off to the taxpayer, but hey. Uh, the insurance company. But anyway, so Anyway, th- my point here is that that form of obje- objectivity yeah. was always only an ideal, an I- idealized version of things. And it, it foreclosed the questions like, well, wait a minute, what, what stories and angles don't even get considered as options for coverage? Right. right? So maybe you're going to try to tell this story fairly and accurately. Good. Fairness and accuracy are important. Accuracy probably more than fairness, to be perfectly honest. But in any case, what about all the things that don't get considered? What about the, you know, the layers that 
that a story has to get filtered past before it's even going to make it to the news. I mean, think about all the things that were going down that were really important and were not newsworthy in the eyes of the newsmakers. And then you'll see what I mean. So, no, I know exactly what you mean. They they show. I don't think that objectivity should be put on a on a pedestal. I think that's a mistake that locks us into. You know, the same thing has happened in science over the years, and then there have been you know philosophers who have brought this into question, but. The basic idea that, you know, we can only ever have partial knowledge. Our knowledge is always positioned in right. a field of power relations, and, and we need to understand that. We can't claim that somehow we can remove, you know, we're human. It was to your point, Will. We're, we're people, and people have blind spots. You know, the scientists who have rigorously identified and cataloged all of these cognitive biases still have them. <laughs> Right? Just knowing about it doesn't make it go away. So, so do you, do you think we should bring back the fairness doctrine for media? No, you don't. No, but I do think that we should. Well, because for for one thing, so for years, uh, and I don't want to dwell on this. And if well, people don't know, explain what the fairness doctrine was. The fairness doctrine was official policy of the Federal Communications Commission that you had to give equal time in broadcasting to members of both political parties. So it's very much mapped onto a system in which there's two official points of view and you should and the way to quote unquote be neutral is to just simply give them equal amounts of airtime. So no, I think that's a, a too coarse um, and flat footed of a doctrine. At the same time, I don't think that actually having, you know, most of what we do now is not even covered by the Federal Communications Commission because it's not broadcast on on airwaves owned by the government or licensed from the government. So it's on the internet. Yeah. So but 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 more important than the fairness doctrine ought to be the like revealing our biases doctrine. In other words, every one of us ought to be examining to a you know to whatever degree necessary so that if someone were to ask, like, well, what's your, you know, but what's your bias? They could actually answer the question without embarrassment because we all have them, but we're trying to pretend we don't. So that's the problem. So, and, and you know, for years, what's happening is uh, the convergence of the old-fashioned media that was still holding to accuracy and truth and whatever, and new forms of performance on cable initially and then on, the, you know, well, and, the airwaves, because a lot of this stuff started in the 90s with Rush Limbaugh and his cronies. So a, a lot of this stuff then had the exact same appearance as the sort of older, quote-unquote, objective uh, way of doing things, right? So it had the same sound, the same look, the same chirons at the bottom of the screen, the same little ticker, the same, you know, thing with the breaking news. And now we just have a mishmash where opinions... And reporting and, you know, the circus are all sharing the same platform and look exactly the same way. And I don't think, you know, I think what we have in this country fundamentally, um, if I was going to get on my little soapbox here, is, you know, we have people whose business models rely on the rest of us being ignorant to the ways we're being played. I think fundamentally that's what it comes down to. So those business models are more effective when they can make us emotional, right? Uh, anger and fear and outrage are good for business. And I don't care which end of the political spectrum I'm talking, it's all of them, right? Keep people scared, keep them angry, keep them afraid, and you will keep them watching. You will keep them subscribing. You will keep them donating, you know, et cetera. 
So the problem is we have a, you know, a government by the people for the people, but the people are the last ones to know what's really going on and, and have the, the weakest set of resources provided to them to become educated citizens, right? So, and that works for the elites of all kinds who prefer that the rest of us are like angry and dumb. Because it fits. Yeah, I was, was going to say, like, we're, the last, their purposes, we're so. the last person to know. But do we know? You know, do we know? Do we know the truth? Are they telling us the truth? Like, it's so it's so hard to trust. Well, whoever it's, they is, I guarantee you, they are never telling us the, the right. truth. They're not telling because the truth, but at some of they, they aren't trust. telling themselves the truth either. Mm. You know, d- mm. d- there's this wonderful book written mm. years and years ago about a totally different thing, um, but it asked this profound question: Did the Greeks? believe their myths, right? And I won't get into the details of it and everything else. But It's the, a great you know, question. Well, we great sort of question. take it for granted. They're like, well, yeah. of course, you know, there was Zeus and there was thing. Yeah. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Did the Greeks believe their myths? Right? Like literally. Or they, right. did they, take, they, take, they take messages and meanings away from it. It's like, you know, you could, say, you could say the same thing today with the Bible. People actually literally believe the Bible, whereas a lot of people would be like, okay, no, there's teachings you can take from the Bible and take it literally. So did people Correct. believe the Bible, believe the Torah, the, the Quran, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and every can, other I, I pick sacred up Christianity text. It's a simple one, but you can insert any religion here. So, you know, in reality, I think people always are much more nuanced and complicated than we give them credit for. And, and the, the increasingly, well, I don't want to sound super nerdy, but like, it's almost monochromatic. You know, it's like, look, the human piano, like a real piano, has, you know, 88 keys of emotional range. I almost said rage. Maybe that's better. We've got 88 keys, right? We've got, we've got, we've got a wide range of expression. And increasingly, it's, we're being dominated by, like, the middle four keys, you know, and every song being written, not literally, I'm not talking about music. This is a metaphor, friends. Every song... Every every political message, every you know, every, it's just banging away on the same four keys, and it's it's gotten stupid and annoying in its um, overly simplistic view. I think people are capable of much more than that, but they're not being fed it. And folks are busy. Life ain't easy. People got rent to pay, medicine to buy, you know, k- kids to raise. That alone, I don't want to get on that, uh, you know, uh, diversion here. But like that, <laughs> I did not know how hard it was going to be to be a parent. Uh, partly because I think I thought I was going to be better at it. Just I just assumed that well, I'm a pretty chill guy. I've been a lot of places. I've seen a lot of stuff. This is going to be fine. It's not fine. It's really hard. And it's even harder for people who don't have some of the social safety nets or family safety nets that have helped us when we've gone through some really rough spots. Oh, or just even the ability of somebody else in the family with a job to pick up a little bit of slack when, as has happened, we find out all of a sudden that, you know, the landlord needs the house back and we got to move, right? And, like, for people who don't have the ability for someone else in the family, they're like, here, I'll spot you. You'll be okay. I know this right. will work out and, you know, help you through the ruts. You know, there but for the grace of God go I kind of a thing. And I, and I try to be aware of that as much as I can. Like, it's it, – the studies are shocking. I didn't, didn't look them up in advance, but I, I've heard them relatively recently. The fact that most people in this country are like – three days away from homelessness at some sort of economic it's level. It's a high majority of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency. There you go. They have an average of like $500 in savings, which, yes. you know, I consider myself very lucky and I work very hard. So I, I earn it as well that I am not in that camp. Um, but I easily could be within a few months. And that's, any of us and that's could. terrifying. Any of us could. And any of us we, could. Correct. And not any of us, but like, 
The majority. A high, the, vast the 95% majority. of yeah. us could. Yeah. I mean, there's three people who own more than 50% of the world. That's just a fact. It's, it's crazy. crazy. This rock um, spinning through space in the middle of nowhere, and there's like three guys. And there's three guys, <laughs> right? And they're, all in, and they're all in America, which is crazy. Yeah. And, well, they could be in Saudi Arabia. But they, don't, they, don't, they could be lying about their wealth. You know, we have no idea. Um, but I do, I do want to stick to the institution of media. Let's do it. We, people on the internet, people my generation say, we don't trust the institutions. We shouldn't trust the institutions. Well, I want to flip that. Do they trust us? And I think that's the bigger problem. We're not supposed to trust the institutions. If you trust government, man, if you're relying on government to save you, look around. It's not coming from anybody. But do the institutions trust us? And how can we get them to trust us? Because news media's media organizations, yes, it is beneficial for them financially to not tell us the truth and to stir anger and hate and all this stuff. But their higher-ups and people who feed them information, they don't trust us with the truth at all. So I think that's the bigger problem that kind of goes unannounced and unaddressed. What do you think? There's a really interesting book that was written um, back when I was just finishing up with grad school at Berkeley. A guy at the same kind of age as me was, in, was grad, getting his PhD in the geography department. And um, we all were in awe because, first of all, he was this brilliant guy. He was a great writer. He was also an artist. And his um, PhD dissertation, he sold it to Penguin Random House is like a real book before he was even done with his degree. Uh, the book is called Blank Spots on a Map. And it asks the question, what can we know about secret government programs from the outside without breaking any laws by understanding that even secret government programs occupy the same world we do so they follow the same laws of physics which means they they you know exist in space they reflect light things of that nature so the book at one level is a story about him piecing together what he can about secret pilot uh plane you know test plane programs um you know groom lake and tonopa test range and things of that nature area 51 all the way through to keystone spy satellites and secret government programs in the budget and things it's just really cool it's just an interesting read but his basic question is how much secrecy should a democracy tolerate right mm. do the people need to know everything no. or should or, or or you know because at some level we've accepted the claim that listen there's some things you can't know about you shouldn't know about right right and I think he's asking a super interesting question. And as somebody who spent, you know, almost a decade of my life bouncing around dangerous, faraway places in and out of war zones and things of that nature, you know, where both our military and the others were engaged in, you know, sometimes nefarious activities and things, you know, I, I, I think that's an interesting question to ask. How much are we collectively as human beings willing to tolerate secrecy as a way of organizing, as an organizing principle of government. I don't have a very good answer to this. And Trevor, who wrote that book, knows a lot more and has gone a lot deeper into that question. But I think, Will, you touch on the core issue. I Actually, really before do. We, before you nailed it. Let me, let, me, let me take a stab at that. Yeah. In terms of secrecy. So you, you gave speeches at the UN, right? The UN- Well, is, I wrote it. I didn't, I didn't oh, sorry, end up sorry, delivering it. The person who was appropriate to- to, to do the speaking, did the speaking. Okay, so you, you yeah. wrote a speech for the UN. So yeah. it's like international law, right? There is international law that exists. It's just impossible to enforce. So in terms of secrets, as long as you are in the bounds of those international laws and you don't break those laws, 
you can keep your secrets. I don't need to, we don't need government like nuclear codes where they're held, certain things with the military, um, whatever can be kept. But like lunch orders are top secret nowadays, whatever. But if they're breaking the law, it could be kept top secret, but it's also should be known and there should be no punishment for if that's known. So you can, secrecy should be within the bounds of international law and when it comes to like war overseas. Okay, now let me just, I think you're, you're on your way to make an interesting point, but I want to throw a little wrinkle in. Please. So international law, as it is currently uh, defined and enforced, is about the relationship between nation states. And it's a product of originally the League of Nations and then mm -hmm. the United the Nations compacts and so on, in which the signatories to these compacts are in fact governments. So here's where the real thing gets muddy, because international humanitarian law, which is about the rights between, you know, between states, the relationship between states, maintains this principle of sovereignty at its heart, which is to say that the legitimate state government, and you know, here they mean national government, right, um, has the uh, right to act with impunity within its own territory. So now what do you do when, as in Sudan, where I spent a long period of time, the government itself, and I mean, Sudan today is, you know, <laughs> a perfect example of where this stuff breaks down, but I'm talking about 20 years ago, the government is funding paramilitary groups that are slaughtering civilians. So international law in that regard, sure, human rights law can kick in, but then we have you know, the, the pragmatic reality of the Human Rights Council and of the UN Security Council, where you've got U.S., Britain, France, China, and Russia, and only one time in the history of the Security Council were they unanimous on something, which was the case of Iraq in 1990, which is entangled with my own story in a way. We won't get to it right this second. But that's the only time they ever agreed on something. They imposed sanctions on Iraq. So what do you do when governments are flaunting generally acceptable principles of how you should treat civilians, right? Like nobody thinks it's a good idea to be slaughtering women and children, right? However, this happens all the time, and it happens with impunity because it's happening inside the borders of a sovereign state. So there has been a movement for a good 20 years now called Responsibility to Protect, which is basically trying to, to rework some of the underlying principles and say, well, what if, what, if, what if we could agree something that would keep that from happening? But that's, that's sort of stuck. So your, your premise is not wrong. It's just the containers to which yeah. it's applied are, are nation states. Well, let, let me take a stab at that too then. Which brings a problem. Yeah, let me take a stab at that too. So, All right. example, um, Obama, Trump, and to some extent Bush killed countless of innocent people in Iraq, Afghanistan through drone strikes. Well, what? it started. This started earlier, so don't earlier. leave Clinton I, out. Don't leave so, Clinton out. By the okay, way, and I would just throw, I'll, I'll I would, say why every, this is important. Why this is important is everybody blames Bush for this uh, doctrine of regime change right. in Iraq. That was a Clinton administration doctrine. Madeleine Albright was the first one to ever use the phrase in a speech, and then Clinton made it the official policy of the Clinton administration in October of let's, 1998 and started bombing say, Iraq in December every, 98. Let's, let's even go back further to Vietnam, right? All okay. the presidents since Eisenhower, right? So they broke international law. Now, should another state, another government, another country dictate over us? No, you can't do that. And you can't impose your will. But what well, that's you have the definition to, of, so of sovereignty, sovereignty, and I think we have to ask ourselves whether we're willing to accept the price tag of that concept. But the information 
needs to be released to the American public because it is being done in our name with our money, taxpayer money. So that information needs to be made public through a media so we can vote them out or convict them on our own. You can't rely, when it comes to international law, there is no power above them. They're technically, these theoretically, all equal. Like who, are, who are we to go into another country and be like, hey, you're breaking international law, we're going to punish you. No, 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 you can't do that. The citizens of that democracy, whatever nation state you have, need to be the one punishing the politicians and the military people because it's done in their name with sometimes their money, specifically in the U.S., so that yeah. is how it needs to be done, at least properly. Because theoretically, who, you're 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 not yeah, wrong. in a perfect it, world. That's how I would. But there's do a couple it. other things. So, like for example, if we were talking about societies with full blown execution of democratic practices, then maybe a, right. a free press. You know, again, all these things they line up really nicely on paper. Yeah. Where you know a really free press universe. is essential as a way of educating people in a in, in a political system where their vote can make a difference and change things like all that at, at the level of sort of theory and ideology it's it's, it's great right uh, it, it's a little bit like saying well I think democracy is a good idea if it were to actually exist Correct. you know even so going back to something you said a minute ago I don't want to leave off what you just said but I want to bring in something you said a little bit ago you know, do they trust us? Well, the answer is clearly no, because here would be the simple test. If you trusted the citizens to make decisions, then voting would be the easiest and most automatic thing on earth, right? Yeah. You would be able to vote yeah. anywhere at any time, just as you can file your taxes mm -hmm. anywhere, anytime, online, whatever. The government has no problem knowing who I am in order to accept my income tax payments for myself and my, my S corp. Right? right. And I can do that all online. Like I don't have to see anybody. There's no, they aren't checking my ID. I mean, they are, but in an, in electronic way, right? If we really cared about democracy, we would make it easy for every qualified adult person to vote. Right. And I know there would be some debate about qualified, but we would have that debate and then it would be done. It would voter registration would be automatic. Yep. Election day would be a national holiday. Yep. Whatever, whatever, whatever. I don't yeah. know. You know. 100%. So, yeah. And you look at the amount of effort put into making that hard, rigging the rules, changing the district, like at every possible level, it's clear. Not allowing debate there's a threat. for more political candidates. There's a threat. Yeah. So, and I don't care. Again, listeners, I don't care which party you vote for. This is not my point. This it's not good for any of them. Right. This is, nobody, you know, the corporate Democrats are just as bad as everybody else. This is not good. So we, the people, at some fundamental level, ought to be going, hey, 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 hey. Like, how is this okay? But again, this comes back to who has the time uh, and, and the wherewithal, the, the actual economic means to get engaged in these issues, right? right. Well, not a lot of folks. And to be fair, right, I do, I do like picking on corporate media because it's easy. I like picking on politicians because they're assholes. But to be fair, if corporate media, if any media for that matter, did report, like on the, the genocide in Yemen, right, that Saudi Arabia is doing, or what happened in Afghanistan, or what's happening in Ukraine, if they're telling the truth about that, the full truth, I'm not saying they're lying completely, but the full truth, would the populace care? Or are they more interested in Bud Light having a trans person as their spokesperson for like a week? The populace just might just because there is there is some responsibility on the public to seek out the information and see sure. through the bullshit, which yes. generally the public doesn't do. 
Well, yes. And you have, again, responsibility, I, you have responsibility as a citizen. I, I agree that there is a strong responsibility. And, and, and this is why I think making like changing the way interests are aligned economically is mm-hmm. required here. So I guess at some level that makes me an old fashioned Marxist revolutionary. But that I don't mean this in some sort of silly kind of, you know, grad school seminar debate kind of way. I mean, we just got a system in which the interests are aligned with the powerful and the wealthy and not with everybody else. And that is causing a problem because how could somebody get interested in it? Like practically, right? You got a single mom working three jobs, you know, four kids at home, concerns about the neighborhood she lives in, concerns about the the future of her kids, concerns about their lack of health care, concerns about their, you know, food, the school lunch programs getting yep. challenged. And somebody's yelling about, you know, the bathrooms and like who's allowed to use what bathroom. And does yep. she really care? No, she doesn't. No. And sh- should she? Well, no. probably. But, ca- you know, is that reasonable to expect? No, of course not. We've all got this kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing we need to be dealing with. I understand that. And I appreciate that. The the corporate media and corporate politics are, they come at a big price. And I don't think it means the alternative is easy, right? We, we've seen that populism swings both ways. And, you know, it's not like there's a ready-made obvious answer to this. I will say, I, I've been convinced at some level by people who have argued that all politics is local. Yes. At the end of the day. Yes. And it's the... It's the gutting of local newsrooms mm-hmm. and the lack of awareness that there are opportunities for people to make a direct difference in their own neighborhoods, school districts, communities, cities, and states. That whole layer of our political participation is pretty Gone. much Gone. unknown. Gone. And that's where the rubber really meets the road. Yeah. The most so, important vote isn't for presidents for city council. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. City council, school boards, your mayor, you know, all of the ways in which you could even. get involved. The, yeah. Even, you know, for people who live in the suburbs, your freaking HOA, right? Yeah. Get on the board of your HOA, just some, right? Something. So I don't know. I don't have an answer for any of this, it, except to say that we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of toxic money, toxic masculinity, and a bunch of other toxic stuff running, running amok. The media is not helping. Um, but at the same time saying that, I believe it could. And so that's, you know, I don't want to throw away the transformational potential of really great storytelling. It's just, we might be looking for it in the wrong place now. I think it, we may have to just accept the fact that that, 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 that game is over, right? right? The way in which advertising dollars could drive, you know, channels, could drive, you know, stories, et cetera, that informed people. I think that's gone. And we have to reinvent it. We have to do it together. And it's not going to be a single answer. It's going to be lots of different things. That's cool. I'm a pluralist. I want people trying all kinds of experiments and making all kinds of weird shit happen. Yeah. And, yeah. And the answer is, the answer is also going to have many flaws. Like, I'm a big proponent of independent media. Obviously, I'm a podcaster, right? I love podcasts. Yeah. I get most of my news from trusted sources on YouTube, and some of them I have to recognize their biases. Even though they won't, I will for them. Um, but with independent news, also has problems because they don't have access, and they have their biases, and they can get audience captured. You, know, you, can, you can get corporate capture with like, you know, Pfizer's money feeding your audience um, in, your, in your pocketbooks, but if you get an audience and you piss off that audience, you're done. As an independent, as an independent um, content creator, independent news person, 
So there's there's plenty of flaws in independent media as well. I mean, you're you're you're, you're have a great mic there. You have an uh, experience in radio. I'm assuming you've been on thousands of podcasts by now. Like you probably went into this a bunch as well. Well, so what's interesting is I have a somewhat contrarian surprise, surprise, contrarian point of view about it. I think that we um, listen. There's multiple ways to go. I'm going to be the last person to tell anybody what's right for them, right? Uh, I hope that's been made abundantly clear. But at the same time, I do have some concerns about the indies trying to play the same game as the big media outlets and and but there's i'm not yet convinced of what i actually think about this let me try out a thought with you so one thing i do know about podcasting both as a strategist and as a podcast producer and you know a guest and all the rest the audience game is the hardest one of all. So what you just identified as the potential threat to independent media is correct. It's hard to grow an audience. It's hard to sustain an audience. And it's hard to monetize that audience, right? So in part, I have in my own professional practice as an advisor to professional services firms who want to use podcasting to grow their businesses, I've actually pivoted away from the audience first model because I know with these particular clients and this particular set of business goals, I can help them achieve those goals without having to grow a huge audience. We could talk about that. We don't have to. No, please. It doesn't matter. Let's, but let's for, do most that. Folks, for most <laughs> folks, uh, well, it requires, I'll get into the details in a minute, but it requires having, having a service that's narrowly targeted, which usually means B2B. Uh, and it requires an industry that's driven primarily through relationships and those relationships need to last because the lifetime value of a client or customer could easily run into the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. So we're talking law firms, architecture firms, accountancies, et cetera. There's P- and I'm selfishly defining my service offerings and the people that I can help according, but in order to avoid the audience growth problem. So speaking of biases, I will put that one right on the table. But here's what I do observe from being adjacent to the rest. Making content that engages people in a meaningful way such that they will support you. And let's be clear, for podcasts or any other form of independent media, the only three ways you can make money with that with from the audience itself is through ads, sponsorships, or premium subscriptions. If there's another one, I'm not aware of it. I'm happy to learn. But I think those are the three. So you can have a large enough audience that you can monetize it on a CPM basis, right, through ads. You can have either a large or a hyper niche and targeted audience that you can monetize through sponsorships. So somebody who wants to reach that group of people. I know folks that have a very, very um, monetarily successful show with only a thousand downloads because it is a niche audience that a sponsor wants exclusive access to. So they just buy the whole inventory for the whole show and, you know, they'll make a thousand dollars an episode and, you know, that can be very meaningful, right? So ads, sponsorships, or premium subscriptions, the Patreon type model, the Substack type model in writing, you know, things of that nature. So, but how do you make that kind of content? I mean, you're going to know the answer to this better than me, Will, because I'm not even playing that game. That is hard. Well, it's hard. Seeing as that I don't do either of those three, um, yeah. But what I do do is, um, and this is something that a few weeks ago, Keith Hayes, a friend of the show, um, grew up in my neck of the woods, um, and he's been podcasting since like 2006, right? So people have been telling him forever, like, this is not going to work, this is not going to work. And he says something brilliant. 
You don't need a big audience. You don't need those three to be successful in podcasting. I am firsthand in that as well. Like he just got a partnership with the VA um, with, with one of the people he, he works for because he also does production services. So one thing I would add to your list of four is services. Like my, okay, I, consider, I consider my podcast Great. a service, right? I am, this, I am giving you a service. Yes, we are talking. It's free, but I am giving you all the content I create all of the social media posts, like this copy from ChatGPT as well as I'm going to fix it because it's ChatGPT. Um, but like I'm giving you a service, giving you all the content for you to use as well as for me to use. Will that help me get an audience? Hey, man, I hope so. But audience is my number one focus because who is my audience? On YouTube, no idea. TikTok, not a clue. In real life, I can name you all of them because those are the people who matter most to me, the people in real life. Not my, not my boss, not her boss, her boss came up to me at work was like, hey, Will, I heard you had a podcast with Alan. Like, send me a link. How'd that go? Oh, so I work, I work, so my full-time job is a live stream producer. So she knows, now my boss's boss's boss knows who can determine if I get promoted or even go full-time with better benefits, knows I do a podcast. That is the value of my podcast, not the audience, okay, not perfect. advertisements. Great. So this fits actually with my, with the, with, the, with this full model that I have, but it's not the audience itself. So Correct. what I have said, and there's a slide in my deck, <laughs> but which is awesome. Yeah. No, but listen, it's literally the best because the. I'll just pause for a second and say the people who are constrained by audience growth metrics, um, in many ways, are going to try to play a game. In, in which they end up down the line and ask any influencer who's been doing it a minute whether or not they're as happy with the with the content they make lately as they were when they started. And the answer is no. And you yes. ask, well, why not? And they say, well, because I've, I'm less myself. I've sort of had to do things that I know the audience would like. And now that I've got this audience and I'm making reasonable amount of money through these brand deals, I try other things and like the engagement drops and I'm like, oh man, so I'm trapped, you know. Yeah, they're the not literally captured. trapped, but they uh, can no, feel they are that trapped. Way. They are. They, they're emotionally and mentally and physically trapped. Yeah. They so feel like I they say that there's else. there's three untapped opportunities in podcasting, but I would apply this to all indie media because I don't think there's anything. Just like I don't think humans are the most significant and special species on the face of the earth, I don't think that podcasts are the most special and significant form of media. By the way, that just saying that pisses off a lot of self-appointed podcast I experts. Agree. I agree with but you. But I don't care. Podca podcasting isn't there yet, but I agree with it's, you. But it doesn't matter. It's just, it, it'll be there or it'll never be there, and it could still be special, you yeah. know? So here's the three untapped opportunities, right? The first is relationships. That's the biggest one in my view. Networking. And that's what I'm doing for my yes. clients with the shows we produce and listening to your description. That's what you're doing. Yeah. So I'm networking. Your Absolutely. podcast is networking. Your podcast is relationship building and even the consumption of it. Oh, Hey, I heard you had a podcast. I'm going to go listen to a couple episodes of it is a relationship building phenomenon. Not an That person may not subscribe and you know, pay you five bucks a month through Patreon or some other nonsense. I like, don't care. Exactly. I don't, <laughs> I don't care. care. So that makes care. us line. So relationships yeah. is the first one. And there's a couple of ways that you can get those relationships. But I like the one that features on the guest so that, you know, I'm building shows for my clients that the podcast itself is a relationship engine. Mm -hmm. And I get the sense you're doing that same thing as well. Okay. So relationships. The second one is related, but different reputation. So I yes. absolutely believe that podcasting, like many other forms of independent media, can be phenomenal for building a reputation. And this could involve hosting a show like you're doing, or it could involve guesting on shows like I'm doing right now. So reputation is about what? Getting known, 
for you, who you are, your personality, your unique point of view, and your skills. So if I have a client who says, you know what, I really want a podcast to build my reputation, my first recommendation is not to start one, but to do a kind of a guest tour and actually develop some ways to share their thought leadership, which means you have to have thoughts first. Share your stories, share your strongly held opinions and point of views. This was like the first, you know, 50 minutes of what we were doing. Talking about, well, who's this guy? How does he see the world? What, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I probably pissed a bunch of people off and they stopped listening. And some people are like, wow, that's really interesting. I don't know. We'll find out in 10 years, right? Yes, we will. The third uh, one is reach. And I define this very, very differently. So reach is traditionally an old-fashioned mass media metric, which simply means the sheer number of people, right, like downloads, unique listeners, those kind of metrics. I could care less about that for myself and my clients. I want us to reach the right person. So it's actually more like relationships and reputation at the end of the day. Yeah. Targeted reach of the right listeners is an untapped asset. So, so back to circling back to where we were like five minutes ago, most indie creators who are in media in some form or another, I think are trying to replicate the reach of big shows right? They're, they've got listener envy, download envy, right? And they think, well, if someday I had that many people listening to my show, I'd be able to make a lot of money through ads, you know, have Athletic Greens sponsor my podcast or The Mattress or whatever the heck, right? So I don't know. I don't know that you have to play that game. Now, you can. Some people will make it. Well, you don't. Because but you thing. don't. So I have the podcast acronym. Do you know what podcast stands for? If it was going to be an acronym. Give so it to me. a podcast, this is Will Tyrus Grinch, I highly encourage you to use this. A podcast is a personally oriented discussion, select, personally oriented discussion centered around select topics. Podcast. And the most important letter is P, personal. It's personal or, yeah. or professional, right? If it's a business, it can be professional. The P is interchangeable. I, I want my professionals to be more personal. So I'm yes. with you. I would stick with personal because honestly, the mistake professionals make is they forget to be human. Yes. So I like your I like your acronym the original way. I wouldn't change anything. Oh, yeah, I thought that I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep one night, and I was like, okay, yeah. I gotta think of something. That's what I came up with. Um, but it's excellent. It's on the on the topic of podcasting. You know, I run a business. My business is podcasting, and right. my podcast is networking. And I've I've been thinking of this a lot lately. What is my end goal? What do I want for this podcast? You know, people. The final question I talk about Tash podcast spoiler alert, always goes to the guest, so you get to ask me a question. Um, and the most common question is, what do you want out of this? And it changes every single time. Because I honestly, I've been thinking about this a lot. I have no idea. I'm kind of going through a little bit of a career transition right now, a little bit of like a a mix-up of like where this podcast is and what it does. And I don't know. It kind of sounds like a good answer. Because at the end of the day, what do I really want in life? Well, my career comes second. I want to be a dad. That's it. That is the most important thing to me, and that comes across when I speak and how I interact and how I engage myself. I want to buy a house. I'm chasing the American dream. How I get there is just how I get there. So if this podcast is going to help me get there, that is what I want. If I can make a little bit of extra cash, use that as an emergency fund, that is what I want. If I can use it to make some cash under my sole proprietorship, start a 5 to 9 plan, my kid can go to college, that is what I want. So I want this podcast to reach 10 million views, make $100,000, sell it, and sell equity and go public. No. Fuck all that. That's nonsense. I just... I like talking to people. I like networking with people. You are a very interesting person, and you kind of took me through the ringer uh, 
um, psychologically in the beginning, I felt like a complete fucking amateur. So thank you for that. But that's like, that's how I learn, right? I got I to gotta Google some of the words you said, but that's fine. That's how I learn and get and become a better speaker. And it's the way you speak and engage yourself. It's like, okay, this is someone I would want to work with. I'm glad I can now add you to my network. Where is that going to go? I have no idea. And well, sometimes that's really news, terrifying. <laughs> good news is, I so I, I, I was thinking recently, like I mentioned uh, at one point, I was just at this week-long you know, series of, uh, it was a conference, PHX Startup Week. We've been doing it here in Phoenix every year for nine years. It's interesting, but I'm kind of adjacent to it. I'm not that interested in startups. I'm not that interested in VC funding. I, I, I could care less, right? Like you, I'm not trying to you know, build some unicorn uh, in, in, in that way. It's not interesting to me. But I was thinking, you know, why do I do this? Why do I go out and spend a week? You know, my wife and I share a car. We have two kids who are homeschooled. So, you know, to, for me to be away from the house for a week is a big toll on them and on, you know, change. I'm, I'm away from my own business. I mean, kind of peripherally because I'm talking to people and stuff. I'm like, why do I do this? The answer is really quite simple. My, my own life experience and all the places I've been, all the countries I've lived and worked in, all the stuff in the bio that the very beginning has led me to believe one thing is true, which is you're always only one conversation away from things that you did not even realize were going to be fascinating to you, uh, take over your life, take you in a new direction, maybe get you ultimately what you want, or maybe just get you one step closer, one conversation away. Now, the problem is you don't know what that conversation is or who you have to have it with. So you should talk to everybody. I firmly believe that. So when I was uh, teaching at Berkeley, I used to tell my students, listen, everything that I ended up doing that you now think is really cool. You know, I was a reporter for Newsweek during the invasion of Iraq. I went to work for a humanitarian relief organization, helped make the crisis in Darfur one of the biggest news stories of 2004. You know, I uh, all this media stuff, all this, you know, whatever, like getting these strange jobs in strange places that led, you know, to a, a relationship that, you know, was wonderful for the two years that it lasted. Like stuff that just never, it all started because I was talking with somebody and an opportunity appeared in the conversation and I said yes to something that was probably a bad idea at the time, <laughs> you know, but when you say yes to things that, you know, weren't on the plan and they take you in directions you didn't expect. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just my personality is well suited for that, you know, but I've found the detours are always more interesting than the well-paved highway. And you never know what's going to happen when you talk to people and when you're open. So back to what we were talking about, about curiosity, I'll take curiosity over, you know, dogmatism any day because one is open and leads to things you didn't know were possible. And the other is closed and insists on what you already think is true. Yeah. And it's obvious which one I prefer. And to be honest, the money I've made through this podcast was kind of on accident. Right. That's just kind of how it is. Someone's like, hey, can you do this? I'm interested in this. I'm like, oh, yes, I can. I have a business model. Cool. Great. But it's like, I, I want my business to be local. I want it to be friend of a friend. I want to use my network, leverage my network. Like, I don't want a website ever. I don't think I need one for this, for this podcast in particular, for Willie T Productions and Talking with Tara Shuck. I don't think I need one. Um, I reach, I reach, I put this, I put this uh, post on LinkedIn. You're the only one who responded. So thank you. Um, You're very welcome. People at uh, this, um, my old, my, old, my old boss, so not, not my boss, it was my boss's boss's boss, who then reported that other boss <laughs> who started the podcast. He heard the podcast with his old colleague who left the company. He left the company. He's like, hey, can I come on? Great. Adam, I was like, cool. You want to come on? Let's come on. 
And then he recommended me as someone who's looking for podcasting. So great, that's a, there is a lead. So that's kind of how I want to build my business, just through personal connections, people I know. Hey, man, I know a guy. I can go, great, I can do this. I also know a guy. So like, if I'm busy, this podcast takes up a lot of my time plus my full-time job. I know people in my own life who are audio editors. Or if like, I ask like, you, hey, Adrian, do you know an audio editor? Do you, can you edit audio? What's your price? I'll pay you. And just get a job and just outsource to people I trust. So I want to I wanna build my business really on trust in people I know and keep it in my network. And I think it doesn't need to be a million dollar a year. It can just be like $5,000 a month in revenue that I can keep for myself and pay people others. That's cool. I'm 20 years old. I don't need that much. Yeah, this is great outlook. It's absolutely great. I think, you know, we get in too much of a hurry. And, you know, I see this. I, th- I don't think school helps, you know, we, as kids are mm. supposed to learn stuff earlier and earlier and parents get more and more stressed. You know, well, you know, Johnny, Johnny started kindergarten next month and he hasn't learned Latin yet. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not real, but it basically tells you what people are. It's very much like what people are grappling with. Um, I think we need to relax because yeah. here's the here's the thing. Life is either really long or it's not. Either way, you, you don't have much of a say in how it goes. So you might as well make the time meaningful. Might as well make the relationships last to the degree that they can. You might as well make your connections be real. Because the truth of the matter is we got like 8 billion people and, you know, give or take some and change counting. on this yeah. planet who are are so afraid, not all of them, but a lot of them are afraid of getting found out for the exact same thing that everybody else is afraid of getting found out for, which is that, you know, you don't always know what you're doing. You make a bunch of mistakes. Um, some Sometimes you're an asshole. Actually, it's true. You know, that I love Reddit. You know, am I the asshole? And the answer is, oh, yeah, probably oh half, the time, right? so half the time, right? Half the time. So this is this, this quick sidebar. Uh, yeah. My friend and I, we also do a wrestling podcast. We're live every Wednesday, Kings Drinks podcast. And on our post-show, for the past few weeks, we've been playing Am I the Asshole on Reddit. And it's fascinating. Like, that's right up your alley. It's very much philosophical and, like, a case study it's of human society. Stuff. It's great. Yeah. It's great. I don't want to make it a segment, to be honest. Am I the asshole? No, it's perfect. So I think we all got to lighten up a little bit. You know, none of us are really all that special, which is why we yeah. should be kind to everybody. Because you never know when you're going to need it. Um, it. But it's not, you know, I don't mean it in a calculating way. Like, well, you know, it's not like putting karma pennies in the bank because then you're going to, it's just, you never know. Like how many times do you have to hear stories about how somebody, you know, was either really rude to someone and then later found out that they shouldn't have been or found out they were really nice to someone and then later was like, oh, that's the president of the bank and that's why you got hired. Just be cool to everybody. What's your problem? <laughs> we yeah. lighten up. We're all having a hard time out here. Nobody's got it easy because humaning is hard. And no one knows what they're doing. And so say yes to stuff that you don't know how it's going to turn out. Take a risk. You know, the best sort of risk mitigation strategy is to be kind. It's why humanitarian relief organizations around the world have stickers on their vehicles that have an, uh, an AK-47 with a red circle and a line through it because they're trying to tell people we're not playing the game that everyone else in this war zone is playing. Now, that doesn't protect us the way that it used to. Tragically, I've lost a lot of friends to violence against aid workers in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, the occupied Palestinian territories, Sudan, other places. You know, buddy of mine, uh, we we were each going to lead a mission in Sudan, and he decided to take this one, and I took the other one, and his ran over a landmine that had been in the ground for 20 years from an old civil war. He incinerated to death in his car. I survived. You know, you just never know what's going to happen wherever you are, right? 
the piano might fall out of space and land on my house right now. I don't know. So I can't live like that's something I can worry about. You can't control the uncontrollable. You can only control what you can control. And I say first thing you can control is how you treat other people. But you can't be nice to other people until you're nice to yourself. So lighten up a little bit. You're not that bad. All right. You've done some dumb stuff. You might have hurt some people. You might have things that you need to make right. Just do that and then get on with it. Don't do that again. <laughs> be good. We can do better. Just take I don't know why time. this turned into like a little, like a little, uh, you know, preacher thing, but. No, I needed it. <laughs> you I'm not going to do better. I'm not going to You and everybody else. You I, can do better. I, I, we all I, can. I really needed it. I was, I was feeling very down today because it's kind of like, well, I don't, I'm in a crossroads a little bit. Like, I don't know what to do. Like with, with the podcast, with the business, I'm not going to stop doing the podcast. This is fun for me, right? This is my therapy. This is what I do. What I do is podcasting, but it's like how I kind of mold it and what I'm doing and what the plan is moving forward. I'm a little bit of a brick wall. I'm a little stuck. So but this, just this conversation, it's like I feel a lot better. Just to get some shit off I'm my glad. chest. And yes. I generally feel a lot better. And no, I I'm very happy I have for a little that. bit more of a plan. But please, you're going to say something. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so you said you wanted to be local. Yes. And in my point of view, that's the easiest thing. I mean, nothing's easy, but that's a great place to start because here's the good news. If you want to do something local, there's a almost limitless number of people who would love the opportunity to tell their story, talk about their business, share a little about their community and what they're doing. And just have real conversations. Because you have a studio, it's a very easy thing. to have, If you can have people over, I don't know if this is at your house or a place that people can come uh, to. This but, is technically my office, but I'm um, in New Jersey. If anyone's local to New Jersey, I do have a studio in Montclair. Well, there you go. So you can say, listen, I have a show called X. If we feature people from the local community, they could be business leaders. They could be corporate executives. They could be you know, mom and pop stores. They could be just people. It doesn't really matter. Um, you know, again, depends on if there's a quote unquote business strategy or not, but eh, all of it works. And then you just have a show where you have a, a kind of an umbrella for shows. And then you don't have to be stuck with something. So if you had yeah. a network, and I'm putting air quotes if you're listening, if you had a network, which literally is just an umbrella for all the other stuff you want to do, and then you just do mini series, right? So you don't have to do a, a, a weekly show that goes on forever. You can say, I'm going to do six episodes about candy stores. I'm going to do, you know, uh, three episodes about, you know, whatever, the, the water board, like whatever interests you. Then you reach out to people. And I've done this 400 times. The response rate's 100% yes. The only issue was ever, I don't, I'm not available that week. Could we do it another week? So 400 guests I invited on one of my podcasts, which I'm not currently doing, but I did from the end of 2018 to the end of well, about 2021, um, it got harder to do when it went remote because the magic of not being in the room with people was was part of what really makes us work. It's it's hard to recreate, but I think yeah. we're, on a, we're on a wavelength. It's fine. Well, we are, but also, you know, you and I, look, we do this. So, like, for True. me to sit here looking into this, yeah. you know, little piece of glass and talking to you like we're in the same room. I've done this almost 10 years, yeah. Done this once or twice. Yeah, I've done this a few times. So, you know, and it's easy for me to, to actually create the experience of being with you, yeah. which makes it easy for you to be with me because you're also skilled at this too. So, but when you could be in a room with somebody, it is more interesting. It doesn't even mean it's going to be easier. Like they're going to be nervous. They're going to be sweating because they don't do this a lot. Like you're the first person whose podcast they've been on potentially, yeah. but that could be really cool. So you create the framework of, Hey, I'm doing a, sh you know, a mini series on this topic. I think you'd be a great person. Would you be interested in being a guest on my show? And you know, it's 45 minutes away. It's 20 minutes away, whatever it is, people will drive to you. When the show concept is about them. So 
the show that I'm talking about yeah, here is I'm one that sorry. I did. It was just called Valley Business Radio. It's very generic, but I could interview anybody that I wanted. And they all said yes. So you could get way more niche. And, you, and I really like, this is something I've gotten onto lately for myself and my clients. We don't do the never-ending podcast every week. Because look, for those of you who know, and Will, you know this, like nobody's business, there's like five phases, planning, production, post-production, publication, and promotion. Yes. And the biggest mistake people make is they try to do all five of those things for every single episode over and over and over again. It becomes that's, a hamster wheel that's, that's what I do. of hell. Yeah. Right? It's so fun, I say, though. great. I like plan it. a season. Plan a sh- plan a mini series. Mm-hmm. Then you just plan once. Take a couple of weeks. Come up with a concept. Plan for it. Invite people. Get it scheduled. Record all the episodes in two days, three days. Right? Doesn't take a long time. Yeah. Uh, batch it. Then you know, take as much time as you need with your day job to post produce, um, and even just to get the main episodes ready. Because then you can work on the clips. You know, on an ongoing basis. Then publish the whole thing all at once, like Netflix. Thanks so much for being a guest on my podcast. You know, season five of five episodes or eight episodes or whatever is now out. Or our mini series on yeah. you know local moms in business is also out. And you just you could, could I'm not trying to change what you're doing, but I'm just I know the local angle very well. It plays into what I do because right, yeah. like talking to Tarish, like I talk to everybody. Like right. you, you are who you are next week. It's a podcast expert. We week after that. It's a political TikToker, right? It's all over the place. It's all. Yeah. And last yeah. week it was me. My friend is hanging out. Um, but niche niches are huge. I'm like, cool. I like everything. I'm curious. I'm interested in a lot of different things. Let me create niches. So it's yes. talking with Tara. is isn't necessarily a network, but it creates niches. So for example, I have the main feed. Everything I do, the full shows and the clips. I have a second feed, just the clips. I have a third feed, just the full shows. Um, every Wednesday, and like it is kind of in batches, but like, you know, I'm, in a, I'm in a rhythm. I'm in a production rhythm of how I do things. It just works for me. I love it. But everything Wednesday morning, the podcast, the clips are released at 8 a.m. The podcast is at 8.30. So the first thing you see is the podcast, then the clips, podcast, and all the clips. But I go to take it a step further. So this particular podcast is going to be on the all talk to Tarashuk. The full show is just a full show. The clips, all the clips. Um, but it's also going to be on um, the some of the clips are going to be on the entrepreneurs feed. So it's just it's a podcast playlist, an, a feed. So it's on Spotify, iTunes, Stitch, and all that, where I speak to entrepreneurs. Or if we give advice to entrepreneurs, the feed is directed specifically towards entrepreneurs, a niche audience. Or if we talked about sports. If we talk about baseball, I throw it on there. If we talk about the economy, I'll throw it on there. The money playlist, podcast. This last half of the podcast, we're talking all about podcasting. The clips from the specific about podcasts are going to be on that feed. So it's yeah. very, it's very niched, and it does come out in batches. So like, the sports hasn't come out in a few weeks. That's fine. I haven't talked about sports in a few weeks. That's cool. That's fine with me. So I do kind of create those niches, and I get a sense of okay, what are people liking and clicking on. Yeah, I think you could do it both ways. I think you could do it the way you describe, where you have essentially one pillar and then a multiple feeds. Yeah, I, I like the one where you have one feed and then you just put multiple things on it. Because honestly, I think these days, the idea, especially if you're not playing the game where your audience has to grow from episode to episode to episode to episode, think about how you consume stuff. I'm jumping into the feed saying, like, I want to listen to this one, not that one, not that one, not one, this one. And I'm fine. It doesn't bother me. I never think, why did this podcaster put all these different guests in the same show? This should have been six shows. I just skip the ones I'm not interested in. 
listen to the ones that I am interested in. If I like it enough, I might subscribe. And then I'll keep doing the same thing. Skip the ones I'm not interested in. Listen yeah. to the ones. So I think that we don't always realize the the power of having audiences at the episode level rather than audiences at the show level. Like everyone's talking about growing the audience at the show level, and that's totally fine if you that's how you want to monetize, like we talked about earlier. But if you're not trying to do that, then you actually have more flexibility. And so with Valley Business Radio, for example, Valley meaning the greater Phoenix metropolitan area, the Valley of the Sun. Everybody here just calls it the Valley. The Valley. Um, so there's, you know, there's like 16 cities and a bunch of things, but it's the Valley. So Valley Business Radio would have a different audience for every episode depending on who was on. And I'm completely yeah. okay with that. I'm not trying to carry them over from one episode to the next. I mean, yeah. you can. You just have to approach it differently. But you can also not. And it's okay. Well, I like, giving, I like giving the audience choices. I'm, I'm big on choice. So if I typed in talking with Tarashek, I'd be like, oh, yuck, he's speaking to another, you know, pol- pol- political guy. Screw right. this. I like the baseball talks. I like the wrestling talk. I'm just, just subscribe to the, re- the, the, uh, the sports one. I mean, it's just like if you, if you like all of it, subscribe to all of it. And it's, just, it's a way so I can kind of gauge my audience as eventually as it grows. I do think I'm thinking about it now. I probably should have done it. After I have the audience, they can split them up after you have them, not necessarily before you have them. But I'm thinking about keeping it down just to three clips, main, and all of them. It's I think that makes simple. sense. Yeah, because then you know at least there is consistency at the level of the format. So if you're really interested in clips and that's how you want to consume, great, you got that, yeah. et cetera. But you know, going back to something you asked at the, near the beginning of this, Will, which is you know, do they give us enough credit uh, or do they trust us, I think was your actual question. Um, and Think about how we've always consumed media. Like the newspaper had a bunch of stuff in it that not everybody read. But true, you know, there's there's always that one guy who's like, you know, your grandpa who would like read it from cover to cover, every single, you know. But there's other people that like like this section, like that section, read this part, or they like one reporter, so they only read his stories or her stories. They do that thing. Same thing with network TV. If you you didn't watch it 24 hours a day, you yeah. had you know even Pick, in the era of appointments. Shows consumption you know you like for me as a kid it was like magnum pi was on at at like three and then you know um or four 18 was at two anyway i don't remember but you know it's right, like, right, it's right. like 18 it was like 18 magnum pi night rider uh and like and i just watched i didn't care about anything else i wasn't watching in the evening um partly because i wasn't supposed to be watching at all so once my parents you know were like coming home i'm gen x so like we were left alone forever basically um, so I would watch the shows in the in the middle of the afternoon when it was when I could get away with it, um, and then turn the TV off and pretend I've been doing my homework all day. Um, so we've always been selective. It's okay. Yeah. Trust them; they'll figure it out. I think that's a good point. I think that's a great point. All right. Well, Adrian, we've been going a little about an hour and twenty minutes, and I do I do want to thank you, but I'm getting hungry. It is time to go. <laughs> Um, but before we do, I did tease a little bit. The final question of Talking with Tarashka podcast always goes to the guest. It's a nice little twist like the turn. And if anyone listens to the podcast before, they know it's coming. So please, I hope you are prepared. Anything you want to ask me? If you got nothing, you can plead the fifth. Okay, very good. So I, I do want to ask you something. And uh, I appreciate that you gave me the heads up because it made, allowed me to think of something while we were talking. But this is a question that I've started to realize I want to ask more people. And that is this. We often tell stories about our own lives as if we made a mistake, learned our lesson, and then everything after that was like a success graph going up and to the right. You know, like we never made the same mistake again. I personally have never learned anything except the hard way. 
-hmm. And I have made the same mistake over and over and over and over for an embarrassingly long period of time. So here's my question, Will Tereshek. What's a mistake that you kept making over and over and over and over? Oh, God. Oh, man. That is a phenomenal question. Man, you got to me right to the core here. Let me go on. I'm going to solo shot while I think about this. So the immediate one, the immediate one I go to is um, emotionally. You know, I would let my emotions and my anxiety get the best of me. And I would make that mistake over and over and over and over again, whether it was for schoolwork, whether it was with my relationship with my friends, whether it was like going into college. Like it got to the point where in high school I was just broken. You know, I was just broken, back at zero, had to build myself back up. And then I actually found it through podcasting. I built myself back up through podcasting and through my fraternity. The same week I started them both at the same time. And it was just, it completely changed my life. But how I learned from that mistake, you know, I still get emotional. I still, just like, my girlfriend asked me all the time, like, what are you thinking? It's like, nothing, I'm just letting them pass through. I just let my thoughts pass through. So when it comes to your emotions and your thoughts, you just gotta accept them. Feel what you're feeling, acknowledge it, accept it, and move on. That was mistake I kept making over and over again. I would get lost in my feelings, I get lost in my thoughts, I get lost in my emotions, and I get stuck in a loop. And that would affect myself, it would affect my work, it would affect my schoolwork, it would affect my relationships. And it got to the point where, yeah, there's gonna be a days where I'm upset, and I'm visibly upset, and you're gonna feel me upset, and there's just nothing I can do about it. I'm not going to be a bitch to you. I'm not going to like ruin. I'm still going to come in and do my job and do what I have to do. And like, I'll cheer up. But on the inside, I'm still struggling. But I just, it is what it is. Your emotions, you can't control your emotions. They're just there. If you're angry, you're angry for a reason. Now, but you, what you can control is how you react to those emotions and how you respond to those emotions. But just feeling them is okay. And just acknowledge it. I am upset right now. I am mad right now. This deal fell through. It sucks. I'm upset. Acknowledge it. I accept it. What's the plan moving forward? And that is mis- that's, that's a mistake on a human level. That's not even on a professional level. That's a mistake that everyone consistently makes. And it's something that you're going to be learning with and figuring it out until the day you're dead. That's an amazing answer. And I just want to thank you for your honesty and your openness. And, but I want to tell you the punchline of this. I think that the mistakes we make over and over and over are because we have strengths that we haven't recognized as strengths. So I'm willing to bet that if you think about this, your sensitivity, your ability to be moved by things emotionally is probably a strength that you may not have realized you had. Oh, it's my gut. And of course, it takes the form. My gut is always right. Yeah. Yeah. So- Thank you for that. And that's my that's my hunch. I don't know, but I'm going to keep talking to people about it and see how it goes. I think the mistakes we make over and over and over are because there's a strength we're trying to use. We just haven't learned how yet. Yeah. I think I think that's phenomenal. I think that's spot on. And podcasting helps me realize that strength. Love that. Um, so even if, you know, even if my YouTube stays under 1,000 subscribers forever, that's fine. At the end of the day, that's fine. If it helps me get a full-time job with way better health benefits and more PTO and I can afford that house and the kids, that's cool. That's cool. And that's that's my goal with this podcast and that's the goal with Willie T Productions. And um, this podcast, everything I do for this podcast, including the hosting, including the recording, including the distribution, including the social media, including all the clips, everything I do is a service. My podcast is a service and the more I podcast, the more I develop and build those services, the more I network, the more people reach out to me saying, hey, 
can you do this? You know someone who can do this. And it's very local. It's very local. I don't need bells and whistles. My overhead is about maybe $100 a month. I got about $300 a month coming in. So to me, that's a success. So Adrian, thank you again very much for being a guest on this podcast. Anything you want to share, plug, uh, where people can find you? My friends, this has been phenomenal. The floor is yours. Thanks. No, I mean, I'm just up to so many things. There's not any one thing I want people to do. I mean, you can find me anywhere that you can Google Adrian McIntyre. Um, and my, my call to you would be to just the same thing as we were just talking about with Will. Think about yourself with a little bit of kindness, a little bit of compassion. Maybe those mistakes you keep making aren't your fault. There's a strength there you haven't learned how to use yet. And maybe you've been told it's not okay. I promise you it's okay. You're okay. And thanks for having me. Of course. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Will Tarashuk. T is in Thomas. A-R-A-S-H-U-K. If you support my work and want to support the Talker and Tarashuk podcast down there in the description below, this is what I hate doing the most, but I do it because I have to, not because I want to. There is a GoFundMe tab. Just throw me five bucks and help support the podcast. Adrian, I'll drop you a link as well, my follow-up email. If you can, great. If not, I won't hold it against you. Um, anything else? YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. TikTok is fun. Instagram is whatever. All my stuff is in the link tree in the description also down below. Next week, I will be talking with Ryan Sullivan as my camera goes out of focus. There I am. Uh, I was thinking of Ryan Sullivan, a Jersey Boy podcast. I spoke to him on the podcast in 2020 Um, on a different podcast. We're going to speak about his business, the podcast institution, uh, what we think. I'm asking for some business advice as I go through this transition, kind of figure out what the fuck I'm trying to do. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to have Ryan back on the podcast. He's a phenomenal Podcast Principles is a phenomenal platform. Anyone on LinkedIn, uh, follow him. He is incredible. But I'll be back next week. Until then, y'all take care.